Welcome to the Dash Mindset Podcast. I'm Sherry Ziedenbergen. You were born, you're gonna die, and your adventure is your dash in between. So make the most of it. Unlock your potential in all aspects of your dash by embracing your uniqueness and living in a way that's authentic to you. Not by doing more things, but by focusing on the right things. I'm a former corporate leader turned coach who's on my own journey, and I'm passionate about helping you on your journey too. So on the podcast, we'll explore how to live authentically by deciphering who you truly are and what you truly want. Are you ready to take a step toward designing your dash? Someday doesn't actually exist. So let's do it now. Welcome to the Dash Mindset Podcast. I am so incredibly excited today to have my friend and coach and mentor and all the things, Kristen Sherry, here with me today. And I'm going to introduce Kristen. I could introduce, it could take 10 minutes for me to introduce her, but I'm just going to highlight a couple things. Kristen is an international best-selling author, the author of 10 books. Do I have that right, Kristen? Uh, I'm working on my 12th, but I've published 11. Oh, that's right. Yes. I did not count the other one. Okay. Yes. 11 books, including five kids' books that my boys adore. And they're all about building confidence and self-awareness in kids so we can start them off at a young age. Love, love, love it. She's a globally recognized expert in the field of personal development. And she's the creator of UMAP, which is a tool I love and use with my clients. And the UMAP was honored with the Career Innovator Award by Career Directors International in 2020. So... I am so excited to have Kristen here with me today. Uh, You're going to just love whatever comes out of her mouth because I always do and it's guaranteed. Um, And so... No pressure. Seriously, Kristen, you just talk and it's just going to overwhelm people. So um, I would love Kristen. Well, first of all, anything else that you want to add? Because I know there's a lot of stuff and I'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes about all your accolades and all the things you offer the world. But anything else that, that I'm not thinking about? No, you've made me sufficiently blush. <laughs> I didn't know you blushed. That's fun. Okay. All right. So, Kristen, could you share with everyone your overall journey? Because you've had a, um, I don't know if I'd, I'd say treacherous path. You've had a journey just like a lot of us, but um, a very different one, a winding, unique, meandering journey. Could you give the audience a sense of what your journey has been and what led you to where you are today and developing the UMAP? Sure. So in the Very Reader's Digest version, I grew up wanting to be a doctor. And when I was, I don't know, maybe 19 or 20, I got license plates that said MD to (laughs) B. That was... I didn't know that. Yeah, that was my path. And so I went to... Uh, So the psychology department at Brock University, where I went to school, had a neuroscience concentration. So I took neuroscience thinking I would become a neurologist someday. And then after I got my degree, for a number of reasons, I met with a neurologist and he said, do you want to have balance in your life? Do you want to have a family? Do you want to get married? Do you want (laughs) to like have time off sort of thing? He just really talked to me about the lack of work-life balance in that field. And it made me think about maybe just going into the workplace. And that's the meandering journey, right? Because I had it all laid out what I was going to do. And all of a sudden, I found myself having no idea what I was going to do. So I went from um, executive MBA program 
uh, assistant at a, at a local university to a software developer. I did that for 11 years to a, a business analytics analyst. I did that for a few years to an operations manager, did a temporary stint as a senior manager, realized going up the operations ladder wasn't in my dream job description. And so then I moved into learning and development and I was doing executive coaching and career coaching, manager interventions, uh, associate development strategy, um, the strategy for onboarding new hires and a lot of workshops. And I, it was uh, it was very eye-opening to me that that was this personal and professional development space was where, you know, that was my jam. So then I decided, well, I could do this for myself. So I started my own business and my first client was my employer. Um, I quit my job and became a vendor for them for three years coaching their high potential uh, leader program and their program taking people from this the senior manager into like the director band. So kind of the executive track and the frontline manager track. So I did that for three years. And I started as an executive coach because I was certified as an executive coach. I was certified as a career coach first in 2007. But I realized I didn't like executive coaching because... It was a lot of people who were already successful, who were maybe having some problems, people problems, or trying to get to that next level in their career. And it just didn't feel very meaningful to me as helping people who are just completely lost and broken in their career. So then I just moved into uh, career transition coaching, people who were in misery and wanted to transition into their awesome. And then I created UMAP during that process, trying to really figure out how do I know someone's awesome? Because I couldn't find a tool that really did a good job of that holistically. So that's the journey. Oh, I love that so much. And I love that your your journey was such a meandering, okay, where am I headed next journey? Because at one point you knew exactly what you wanted and then all of a sudden you didn't. And you still figured it out. Well, here's the thing. Everything I did... I use today. Mm -hmm. So the operations management, there's a lot of operational things to running an assessment company because that's what UMAP technically is. It's a professional training and assessment company because uh, we have a psychometric assessment. Um, so the operations of that from our master trainers to the certification programs to everything, there's operations and logistics involved. Uh, I understood how to... Um, build training because I led a training group <laughs> mm -hmm. in learning and development. We had online training and instructor-led training. So I knew how to build curriculum for the certification for UMAP. The IT thing, for 11 years, I don't do the IT work to build the coach platforms and the client platforms where people take the assessments. But I understand how software works. I understand what requests are reasonable. I understand programming to the point where I know how to ask for the right things the right way and not things that like you have no idea what you're asking. That's not even technically possible kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I know how mm -hmm. to ask for things in the realm of possibility and know how things would work so I can be a really collaborative partner for the tech. So the, the takeaway of all of that is sometimes when we're meandering what we're doing is building our unique skill stack that we need for our actual purpose and calling later. 
And because I was open to the mysteries of life Mm -hmm. and not requiring exact clarity of why I was doing what I was doing when I was doing it, all I did was focus on, will I be good at this? And is this a skill that'd be worthy of picking up? And because I had that attitude, it all converged together to uniquely qualify me to do the work I do today. Mm -hmm. In addition to all the other strengths and values and everything else in your toolbox. So can you tell us a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about UMAP and what led you to developing it into this holistic tool? Sure. So when I was working with clients, sometimes I was mostly using strengths, the Clifton Strengths, which used to be called Strengths Finder, but it was renamed to Clifton Strengths, I think in 2014, after Donald Clifton died, the creator of Clifton Strengths. Uh, so I was using strengths and I was using personality assessments, but then sometimes people would, they would say things like, well, that's not true of me though. Um, and they would say, why? And I realized that people, you can't put people in very small boxes, like only look at two dimensions of a person because people are like an iceberg. I like to use the iceberg analogy. 10% above the surface is their behavior, but there's all these things beneath that drive them their experiences, their values, their critical thinking skills, their emotional intelligence, their personality, their strengths. There's a lot of things under the covers, right? And I wasn't looking enough. And in the coaching, the life experiences and things should come up. So I I wanted to know, what do I need to know about a person to really understand who they are and get this fast forward instead of taking weeks or months to get to know them. I could get this fast forward and really have a clear picture of this person and then use inquiry and conversation and coaching to fill in the gaps. So I started going into coaching forums and saying, what are you all using like to get to know your clients? And people would say, oh, I'm using Enneagram or I'm using DISC or Colors or MBTI or whatever they were using, right? But they were all personality tests. I'm like, well, you're still just looking at personality, even if it's MBTI or Enneagram or personality is personality is personality. And all you're having is a different methodology to explain a person's personality. There's so much more to people than their temperament and their personality traits, right? In fact, people's interests drive career fit more than their personality does. And so, and that's based on things like the Holland uh, occupation theory that's well-respected in psychology journals. So I thought, okay, people are only looking at personality. That's very a very one-legged stool. You know what happens if you sit on a one-legged stool. (laughs) You fall off the stool, right? So I need this sturdier stool. So I started asking questions and interviewing people and gathering data and started to look at the patterns that I saw. And what I found was that people... I didn't have any end in mind. If there were seven things I need to look at, that would have been fine. If there's 27, I hoped that wasn't the case, but... (laughs) But it was four. There were I, I kept clustering things together into categories. And what it came down to is people felt like they were working with who they are in terms of what they're good at, their natural talent, instead of working against the grain of who they are and what they do well. And that's how you work. The second thing was that people felt that what was important to them was honored by the, by the people they were working with, by the environment they were in, and by the work they did. And that's about your values. 
And then I found that people would have all this language around burnout um, or, or energy in general. I just feel like my job's sucking the life out of me. I'm exhausted, Those, that type of language. And that was finding out that there are skills that motivate people versus burn them out. That's the third thing that I found in talking to people. And the fourth thing is sometimes people can be using their talent in a way that they value and using skills they're great at, but they're just like bored. Like they're not interested in what they're doing. It just doesn't give them, they're just not motivated by like, so they might be, for example, a great business analyst using their skills and it honors their values. Their values are being honored in the workplace, but maybe they're doing it in an industry that they just don't have any interest in. So who they're doing it for, who they're working with, that sort of thing. So it came down to strengths, values, skills, and your interests, which are shaped by your personality. Our personality dictates our interests. I love that. And I think I've probably told you this, Kristen, but when I was first introduced to UMAP, I thought, oh, I'm self-aware. I know these things about myself, right? And then when I took the assessment and I saw that I had some things that I wouldn't maybe conflict is, is too strong of a word, but almost some strengths that kind of conflicted with some of my values. And it just brought everything together in a way that I really didn't expect because I thought I was pretty self-aware. So um, how would you describe the process for walking through a UMAP with someone? And, and not necessarily the specifics of the process, but how is that different? Because, and I'll, I'll tell you why specifically I'm asking this. When I was, when you and I were working together, you probably don't even remember this conversation, but at one point I said, so Kristen, what exactly is the benefit of someone working with me instead of just, you know, taking the test on their own and reading your book? And you said, well, so Sherry, are you gaining, are you gaining something from the conversation we're having right now? Well, Yeah. Okay, so other people will too. <laughs> oh, right. So could you just kind of expand on that? Because that conversation just still stands out to me. And there are days I think, well, why would someone need to walk through this? Even though I know why, and I've experienced it myself. I'd love to hear it in your words. So there's a few reasons. And and because UMAP is intuitive, someone could look at it and and get some enlightenment to say, okay, my number one value is respect and my manager disrespects me. So this makes sense, right? But when you work with a coach like you, um, they, they are objective. And so they're able to make connections between what they see in the UMAP, what you're bringing up in the conversation and connect things back and create new aha moments and insights that a person can't see themselves because you can't read the label when you're inside the jar. Like you're too close to yourself. And so there's a couple of things that happen. So first of all, we create this conversation in our head, whether we don't want to admit something about ourselves, whether it's scary if we see this. And so a guided conversation can help us stay honest with ourselves because our brain wants to protect ourselves, And that includes confronting information that might be uncomfortable. And information that might be uncomfortable is discovering the whole career you've always had is really not where you are going to be happiest. And, but that, that's my identity. This career is my identity. This is my family has this identity of me. And some people just really struggle to walk away from that. And that conversation with a coach 
can be very inspiring. And instead of a fear-based reaction, they see possibility, potential, and opportunity. So that's that's one thing I would say. The second thing is the coach can connect things within the UMAP, not just connect to you and what you've said in your stories, but connect details in the UMAP that they're not trained to do. So for example, if you're working with someone and they find out in their personality pillar that they are a creator and a persuader, let's just say. They like to create and they like to persuade. A coach is going to help them dig in to their motivated skills and have a very guided and meaningful conversation on, okay, let's look at your top five to seven skills you enjoy and let's brainstorm ideas of all the ways you can create and persuade through writing, through whatever their preferred skills were, right? Through conceptualizing, through mentoring, through what whatever those skills are that they enjoy using. And then also do the same thing with their strengths and say, okay, you seem to be motivated by building relationships and thinking in your strengths, right? And so it looks like your number one value is being an expert. So how can you build relationships in a community using your thinking skills, which might be involved in futuristic thinking. It could be involved in more of a research type. It depends on the person, right? Let's talk about how you can build relationships and and be seen as an expert. And so they might, for example, be the person that a different department or group brings in to consult in the organization where they're relationship building and collaborating, but this person is serving as a subject matter expert. And maybe they're not doing that currently, but they have the ability to do, to do that. So maybe more formally, right? Maybe people did that informally. So those are just very high level examples of how coaches can have conversations and connect dots. The tendency with all personality tests or psychometric assessments in general is people say, oh, that's interesting. Oh yeah, that's me. That's interesting. But what they're missing is the so what and the now what. They're, stay, they're staying at the data. So you see data, but you need to turn that data into information. And then that information informs, okay, so what? Why does that matter? And then now what do we do about it? And the so what and the now what is where the action is. And that comes from the coaching relationship. Oh, that's so good. And one thing that I experienced when I went through it, even having gone through the certification process with you and having worked with you, and knowing, you know, what the whole process was to look like and having experienced it. When I had taken, it didn't even occur to me, when I had taken the UMAP assessments, I had taken them in a way that allowed me to see the skills I was using. I didn't take it in a way that really highlighted the skills I wanted to use. Mm -hmm. And I was so stuck in my own head that I thought, okay, well, having an accounting and finance background, these are the things I'm good at. These are the skills I should be using. Right. I'm doing air quotes for the should. And it took me actually going through the process and having several discussions to realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't actually enjoy all of these. Yeah. I just feel like I should be using them. So it's funny how we're just so focused. This is really common. Another UMAP coach said to me, I feel like this UMAP has given me permission to say no to things that I don't like to do. I feel like I've had permission. And I thought that was an interesting choice of words because it's not really permission. It's not like this 10-page profile is saying, hey, Kathy, you should go do what you want to do. 
um, what she meant is it allowed her to look in the mirror and be honest with herself Mm -hmm. about what Mm -hmm. she really wanted out of life and what she no longer wanted that was no longer serving her. And I think because I I don't feel like I've ever been the type of person that felt like I needed permission, like like you're saying, the not real permission, like permission slip from when we were in school, but it did seem as if I didn't give myself the okay to not have some level of justification for going down a different route than what my education had led me down. Yeah. Yeah. This is who I am. This is my identity. I've always been the finance person. I've always been the HR person. I've always been a manager. So I have to say I love managing people and hiring and staffing. And it's like, maybe not so much. Like that's what UMAP did for me is it made me realize I love to lead and I love to be a leader, but I don't like managerial responsibility. And so it caused me, I, you'll notice in UMAP, I, I separate leadership and managing others because a lot of people make the mistaken assumption that in order to be a leader, you have to manage people. And sometimes that's not true. Sometimes you can be a leader through subject matter expertise. You can be a leader by being a consultant. You can be a leader by being a speaker. There's a lot of ways you can lead and you don't have quote unquote direct reports in the conventional writing performance reviews kind of way, right? I mean, I technically manage somebody that works for me, but we work with each other. I never say that she works for me. I always say she works with me because I give her a ton of autonomy. She's very responsible. I don't need to manage her performance In fact, we don't even do performance reviews because we just give each other real-time feedback as a common practice. So I hear this a lot where people, they think then they should say that they're, they're good at things and they enjoy these things. But really when the rubber meets the road, they no longer enjoy it. Yeah, I'm really good at this, but I could really do with not doing this ever again. (laughs) Right. And you know, even, and not just that, accepting, not just removing and relinquishing things that no longer serve you, but accepting and taking on things that would serve you that you don't identify Mm -hmm. as. That's what happened to me when I did my own UMAP. So remember, I'm the creator of UMAP. I know all of these individual components and I had to wrestle with my UMAP when I found out that I was a creative. I had never considered myself a creative. I rejected that term I was a STEM person. My first real career was in STEM, in in tech. What is this? You're a creative nonsense. And it was the word that was tripping me up because I was thinking about artists and sculptors and painters. But what being a creative really entails is being original, imaginative, independent, and expressive. And I'm all of those things. But how I create is through books. But I never considered writing books as being a creative person. But it's, I'm creating something. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in the labels of things and it, and it becomes a barrier to really understanding who we are because we reject the labels, right? And that's something I had to wrestle with that I can... I, I can now comfortably say I am a creative and I never used to be able to say that because I had some preconceived notions about what that meant and that's going to mean people will think I'm right-brained and I'm proudly left-brained or whatever, right? And that's so funny because the fact that you said I'm proudly left-brained, I mean, because that's part of our identity too. So we we yeah. just... Uh, could you talk a little bit about identity? Because 
I think that we so often, and you've said this before, that people take on the identity of, you know, what their job is. And I feel like one thing I struggled with for the longest time was I was unconsciously separating my two worlds. So I had my work world and there I was a thing. And then I had my home world and there I was a mom and a what you know. And instead of actually integrating everything and recognizing that, well, one thing that my UMAP helped me do was recognize how I lived my life and how, how I operated it a whole. And I was no longer, you know, these separate identities. So could you just talk about identity in general and your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people realize this. It, your identity isn't a construct that you necessarily inherit. It's largely one that you create, right? But I don't think pe- people realize that because where does our first identity come from? The authority figures <laughs> in our life. You're bossy and you're nosy and you never stop talking and you're going to be alone forever because you're so stubborn. No one's going to want to marry you. Like sometimes people will say things to us and we walk around with this identity of, I mean, and those weren't the words that people used to describe me. I was too enthusiastic and bossy. Yeah, probably bossy. Of course, it was that my leadership preference. I like to lead, right? I'm actually not a bossy person. My husband will tell you I'm not bossy. Uh, we're quite collaborative together, in fact. But so you start out with that primary identity from the authority figures in your life, teachers, caregivers, even your friend group, right? Grandparents, whoever. And then we take on the values of those people as well. You need to make sure you get a job, there's security. You need to make sure you're not going to get a degree in liberal arts. You won't make any money oh, you should take this job because there's a lot of status and it'll open doors. Like whatever people people will express is important to them, right? Place that on us. So now we have this thing where we enter into adulthood and we have to shed aspects of the identity that we don't really believe, but sometimes we don't shed those and we continue to carry them forward. And we make decisions based on the identity and values that we inherited from the authority figures in our life. And all of our opinions and decisions, you know, stem from that. But what's really important is doing that discovery work and really getting down to what's important to me and aligning our lives around what we're good at and who we are. But that identity journey just doesn't come like magically, like waving a wand. And you have to do the work. You have to self-examine you have to also talk to people and, and see how you're perceived, right? Because sometimes your intention and the impact you have are, are misaligned and you have to know the impact you have on people or you won't be successful. It's not about being right. It's about being effective. Like this is who I am and you just have to accept me for who I am. I, I really don't like when people say, well, that's me and I'm not changing. We're not talking about changing your identity. We're talking about modifying your behavior situationally to be successful in a transaction with someone. That's not changing who I am. So this identity thing is tricky because what's really me and what have people said about me and keeping in mind that people misunderstand you. So sometimes the identity labels you've been given were people misunderstanding you 
or people not valuing you because you're different than them. So they don't value what you value or they don't value the way you are, your personality traits or your priorities because that's not how they are. So it's messy. It's messy. But what's really important when you when it comes to identity is you don't feel like you're living your life for other people. Now, that doesn't mean that you are not ever accommodating, that you you don't compromise where it doesn't matter. You, you know, like I am who I am and put up these stakes. It's not about that. But if you don't do that deep self-reflection to discover who you are, you are just going to be like every, every stiff breeze is going to blow you off your path because you you don't have any kind of a sense of what you want out of life. And I see so many people who do that, who don't know what's important to them and their life is just carried away because I, I like when the quote from Jim Rohn that says, if you don't design your own life plan, chances are you'll fit into someone else's plan and guess what they have planned for you? Not much because their plan is what they care about and you're just going to get stuffed into their plan. I really love that quote. Because when you when you go on this, you know, the self-examined life is not worth living. That's what Socrates says, right? And and it's really true because if you don't do that self-examination of what's important to me, what am I good at? What what do I have to offer this world? How can I give value to other people? Still maintaining my boundaries so people don't drain me dry. <laughs> boundaries are important. If you don't do that, you will just be wandering in the desert forever. Right, with no destination. Or maybe the destination that someone else yeah. has has given you, but you don't even recognize that it was something somebody else put on you. I think so often we are conditioned to believe that our beliefs are our own and we don't even recognize what is actually someone else's belief that they just kind of put on us because we don't take the time to think about it. Yeah. And if you look at end of life regrets are very instructive. If you look at the Mm -hmm. top five regrets that people have, it doesn't matter, male or female, culture. If you look at the, I wrote about the top five, I I wrote about regrets in my book, Maximize 365. And so I did a lot of research and watched a lot of videos and read a lot of interviews on life regrets for a one page entry in the daily entries, you know, but they're across cultures, across gender, then one of the top regrets is that I lived the life other people wanted me to live instead mm-hmm. of making my own decisions for myself. And people can't do that to mm-hmm. you if you know what's important to you, if you know what you're good at, if you know who you are and what you enjoy. People can't mm-hmm. do that to you as easily. Well, and one thing I realized about myself throughout my own journey was I couldn't really answer the question, what do you want? And often, like I said, I was separating my work and, and you know, everything else. And so a lot of my concentration was on the goals that we had to write each year from a work perspective. I was so focused on those that I didn't really think about. I mean, I knew I wanted kids and wanted to get married and, you know, those things, but I didn't think about my life as a whole and what I wanted overall. I was thinking about, okay, what do I want? You know, that standard question, what do you want? Where do you want to be five years from now? Where do you want to be 10 years from now? And we have this, in general, thought process that there's kind of that 
I was in the corporate world, as you were this corporate ladder. And regardless of what you actually enjoy, which skills you enjoy doing and what exactly you value, there's a ladder that you climb in order to make progress without really considering, oh, wait a minute, do I even want to climb it? Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone's a ladder climber. There, there are multiple career types. You have spiralers and spiralers like to move around because they're learners and they like to grow and they're generalists and they like to have breadth in their career. So they like to have, mm-hmm. I, was a, I was a spiraler. I used to career transition uh-huh. every two years. And then you have people who go deep. They want to be experts. So they don't climb up the ladder. They, they go deeper in their hole and they become, mm-hmm. and a lot of people think, well, I have to climb the ladder because I want to make more money. And you know, there's money and expertise too, if money's important to you. But if, if you're going right. to do money just because you think you should, that's going to be, there's never enough. There's never enough money. Because mm-hmm. I remember early in my career, I got this huge promotion and my salary doubled. And nothing nothing changed except for we just adjusted our lifestyle to making more money and then needed more again. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, that's just, that's just a bottomless pursuit. Just the more money and the more money. But so many times people are promoted out of what they actually enjoy doing and now move up this ladder. You've got to remember, it's not more of what you were doing. It's different skill sets altogether now. And mm-hmm. so you might not even, you go into this career... I know you're managing the people in that career and management is completely different than the individual mm-hmm. contributor role you did. And now you you hate your life. You don't even like managing people. And then you move into the executive band and now there's even more politics and people problems at that band than there was in the band you were in for. And it's and now you have to play the politics game really well. And it's it's misery for certain types of people. And then you have people who don't even want to work for the man, right? They want to be a solopreneur. Or do contract work where they go in and out, take the summer off, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then some people are just not cut out for corporate in general. They're really meant to work outside or with, you know, with their hands or in nonprofits. And it's unfortunate when people say things like, oh, you don't want to go into nonprofit. They don't make any money. Oh my goodness. The people who are driven to be in nonprofit their overarching motivator is to serve society. Mm-hmm. And they don't feel like they're doing that as a corporate number in a cubicle. Not that there's anything wrong with working in a cubicle. You can do great work from there. But certain people just are just... And, and it really breaks my heart when kids are pushed into career paths by their parents who say, I'm not paying for you to get a degree in that. You will never get a job or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really sad to me. I'll pay for you to be an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. Pick one, one of those three kind of mm-hmm. thing. One of the three, yeah. And they mean well, right? They mean well. They're trying to rescue their children from being destitute. But the reality is, is when people are really good at something... I mean, could you imagine what this world would be like if every creative was dissuaded from pursuing creativity? We would have no music. We'd have no art. We would have, you know, not, none of the beauty that fills our world if every child was dissuaded from being doing creative pursuits, for example. Right. And a lot of the creatives that are out there 
probably did get dissuaded, just not to the degree that they caved and and they they cared enough about what they really wanted. But I mean, I'm sure there would be that many more. Just, I mean, the fact that you kind of fought the idea of even being a creative yourself, right? It's just because you're like, no, this is this is my identity. I'm I'm not a creative. And so then when we place the the conditioning and beliefs of everybody else on us as well, I mean, the world would be even an even more artistic, creative place if we didn't have all that stuff going on besides. Yeah, it's not the creative pursuit that's flawed. It's our thinking that's flawed, that your job needs to be your sole source of provision, your sole sense of satisfaction. I know people who are heavy, heavy into music and they're musicians, but they have multiple streams of income. They do gigs and they record albums and they teach lessons in the music instrument they play. Or if they're singers, they teach singing lessons. They create courses. And then before you know it, they have five streams of revenue. And then they also get a a part-time job working for someone else doing that creative thing as well. And then they have like passive income streams. I challenge people to think outside the box and not just like, here's the one job that I will do for 40 years from nine to five and get all my happiness from. But recognizing sometimes you can do creative endeavors in a, in a job that's creative enough and then have your Etsy shop on the side or or whatever. Like you can piece together. It's a it's a it's a tall order to expect a job to provide everything from financial resources to satisfaction. And people can get really creative in how they piece together their happiness because your life is a whole thing. It's a whole holistic thing. And as long as you are happy holistically, it doesn't matter like where the scales are. It's like, well, I'm 70% of my happiness is coming from home and 30% at work. Why Why is that a problem? You know, if you're 100% happy. Right, right. And we just don't think that way. It's okay. I know a lot of my focus throughout my career was, okay, yeah. having this sense of work-life balance, but completely separating the two. And not completely, but... Um, for the most part, I thought of them separately. I didn't think about my life overall in in the way that I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think people do that. They compartmentalize for sure. Can you, you know, I could talk to you for seven hours, Kristen, but one thing I would love for you to to cover before we go is the fact that you hated collaboration when you were in the corporate world because... I mean, I don't know of an environment that doesn't focus on the importance of collaboration. And you were a rock star employee and you hated collaboration and kind of felt like something was wrong with you, right? Yeah, because you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're selfish. You're not a team player. But see, my driving strength is maximizer and maximizers like to work with the best. And in corporate, it's forced collaboration. I have no say in the quality of my coworkers. I have no say in their level of commitment. I have no say in their skill level and ability. I have no say in their ethical makeup, um, their value system, all of those things. And so being forced to collaborate with just whoever is around me or who I'm dictated to collaborate with 
is really awful for me. Just like I don't want to work with every client Mm -hmm. because maximizers are very much, and you have maximizers, you know what I'm talking about. Maximizers are very interested in working people with people who want to go big or go home Mm -hmm. and putting maximizers on failed projects with people who are just kind of phoning it in, as we used to say back in the eighties. I don't know if people know what that means. You're just kind of like calling in sick, you know? Uh, that, that is misery for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but you know, what's really, I'm, I'm glad you asked me the question. Cause you know, what's really interesting about that. I'm, I was misunderstood because people assumed I liked to do it all myself. I didn't trust other people. I couldn't delegate. I didn't like mm-hmm. people. None of those things are true. The motivation is I want excellent work. And I want to work with people who want to go bigger or go home with me to get that excellent work. So I will collaborate with people of my choosing. Right. You're not just going to collaborate because it's a requirement and everyone who is sitting next to you needs to work on this project because it's part of the strategic plan or whatever. That that motivation behind it is so key because people assume why you are the way you are. And your motive might be something and probably is something completely different than what they assume. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you're doing a series right now on LinkedIn about being misunderstood, right? Because it's, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, but generally speaking, so I'd love for you to talk about that for a bit too, but um, we all want to be understood And we don't even understand ourselves to the degree that would really benefit us. And so if we don't understand ourselves, how could we possibly even attempt to understand other people? So could you, and again, I know I can keep you on all day. I won't. Um, But could you just talk about that for a minute or so? Well, I hit a nerve with, uh, with someone I was talking to when they were saying how they were perceived by their family members. And I said... I said, no, that's not why you do the things you do. You're not a control freak who's trying to make sure everything is perfect. She got um, she got accused of being a control freak, a perfectionist, and all of those things. Her motivation was she is a connector of people and she wanted everything to go so well and so smoothly so that everyone could connect and have a good time. She was serving people. She She's a caretaker. She's a steward of resources. And people think that all she was trying to do is... And I said, no, They what's going on is they misunderstand you. And it was like an arrow with a suction cup hit her between the eyes. She said, that is the word. I've been misunderstood my whole life. And 100, one out of one people has been misunderstood. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right? We're all misunderstood. Yeah. Remember that iceberg I talked about? That's the lens yeah. of how we understand the world. So my past experiences with my past boyfriend, my past friendships, my past bosses, your behavior, I felt filter through those experience and you must be doing this because that's why they did that. And you might've mm-hmm. been wrong there too. So the thing is, I'm on a mission right now to pull the covers up and help people understand other people, to understand and to be understood. Because this is what I've been saying lately, that understanding is the antidote to resentment in relationships. Oh, that's so good. 
And understanding doesn't equate to agreement either. No, not at all. Yeah. It sure removes those nasty assumptions. Henry Winkler says that assumptions are the termites of relationships. I love that quote. Oh, I love. I haven't heard that one. Oh, that is so good. Oh, I love yeah. that. Okay, right. another favorite quote. Okay, good, good. Um, <laughs> okay, as we close out today, Kristen, I would love to know what would you tell at this point in your life, if you had a conversation with the teenage version of yourself, what advice would you give? It's not going to be what you expect. My advice to my teenage self would be wear sunscreen every day and don't sunbathe. <laughs> I love it. And maybe get different license plates. <laughs> yes. So I'll be 52 this year. And now I live with my 52-year-old face. And I think about all the times that I like, you know, laid down and let the sun bake me all day with no sunscreen. And you have to live in the body that you have. You said one thing, so I picked that one. But I really, it's, it's about skin cancer. It's about the health of your skin and all of that. But I really did not appreciate and that your face ends at your down at your chest. Like your skincare should be like all the way down, that whole thing. Did you use baby oil too, Kristen? All that. I did all that. Yeah, all that. Yeah, all that 80s stuff. And I would not do that because I would look 30 right now if I hadn't sunbathed. <laughs> so, okay, I was, since we have a couple of minutes, I'll let you give one more piece of advice because I, I said one, but I'd love to hear another one. <laughs> okay, I'll do a serious one. I mean, that so was good. I, one piece of advice I would have given myself is to... Trust my gut. There were so many times that I my gut told me something and I ignored it because something in my brain or another person. But I would ask the listeners, how many times have you said to yourself, whew, I'm so glad I ignored my gut on that one. Oh, that's so true. Right? We have thousands and millions of neurons in places other than our brain. There's neurons in our heart and our gut. We have neurons in our gut and there's this gut head connection, gut brain connection. And when, so our head is like the logic center, strategy, creativity, all of that. Our heart is where the compassion comes from, not for physical right, organ, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Metaphysically. And then our gut is where our courage comes from. So... I used my head all the time and, and with a dash of heart. But I think the best decisions are made when we combine what my head says, what's the most creative, compassionate, courageous decision that I could make. I would have made decisions differently. I ignored right. the gut piece. Oh, that's so good. Oh my gosh. I, I'm sure whomever is listening is just blown away right now. Like, like I promise. So yeah, you met the expectations, Kristen. <laughs> So thank you for asking me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kristen. I'm going to let you get on with your day. Um, I I just can't get enough of a conversation with you. And I'm just so glad that I found you. Um, and it was my friend, and I, I don't know, um, you might not remember this, but my friend Amy Austin is the one who introduced me to you, Map, oh. and said, oh, you should you should meet Kristen Sherry because she was just on my podcast. And... It's just so funny how, you know, our, these meandering roads lead us to where we're supposed to be. We just don't necessarily know what that's going to be. 
So anyway, I so appreciate that. Yeah, I, I love talking to you. I mean, ever since I met you, you've always been on Kristen's top 100 list of favorite people. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. Oh, that means so much to me. And I know you know a lot of people, so that really means a lot. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Kristen. Well, I loved having you. I so appreciate it. You're my first interview, as you know. So I said, you know, you're my first and I appreciate you working with me on that. And um, I've just loved this so much. So um, any where, where can people find you? I'll put it in the show notes too, but uh, you can reach me. Yeah, well, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Chris, I'm the Kristen Sherry in, in the Charlotte uh, area of North Carolina. Or you can meet, reach me at my website, myumap.com. And U is Y-O-U, not the letter U, myumap.com. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so, so much, Kristen. I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you about something else sometime soon. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks so much for listening to the Dash Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, tell your friends and leave us a review. Follow me on my social media platforms highlighted in the show notes and get in touch with me at thedashmindset.com. Share the topics you'd like me to explore in future episodes. Thanks again for listening to the Dash Mindset Podcast. We'll see you next time. Design and differentiate your Dash, your way, and make today amazing.